Welcome to the Cultural Cultivators Podcast, hosted by Nicole Saliver, Bible Eye Creative and Cultivate Labs, where we explore the diverse and dynamic world of Filipino-American culture. In each episode, we delve into various aspects of film culture and speak with entrepreneurs, leaders, artists, and creators who are shaping and pushing the boundaries of their respective fields. Follow us on all social media, Apple I Creative or Cultivate Lab, both with a K. Josh De La Cruz is a powerhouse triple threat who made his Broadway debut in Disney's Aladdin, first as an understudy and a member of the ensemble, and then took over for the lead role as Aladdin himself. Other notable theater includes The King and I, starring Lou Diamond Phillips and Rachel Bay Jones. Also, Here Lies Love at the Public Theater. But of course, many of you know Josh as the very first Asian-American host of Nickelodeon's groundbreaking show, Blue's Clues and You. In our conversation, Josh is quick to express gratitude to his community for getting him where he is today and also cites an unlikely source of inspiration about the importance of keeping community. The movie John Wick, there's a quote like, friendship means little when it's convenient. And it's such, it's like, oh, wow. First of all, what a badass thing to say right before an action sequence. Uh, (laughs) But like, it's so true. A community is something that you have to take care of. Also, in this conversation, we talk about how owning your identity and being yourself can alleviate a lot of the pressure that comes with a creative career. How one of his proudest performances as an actor was an audition piece for a role he wasn't even cast in. And finally, he shares practical advice about the importance of being smart with your finances as a creative. You can find Josh on Instagram at It's Josh De La Cruz and visit his website at www.itsjoshdelacruz.com. I love to start with our podcast episodes, sort of grounding all of our guests and asking them what ancestors or those who've transitioned would you like to call into the space and conversation today? Oh, gosh, I've actually been thinking about them a lot. My Lola's and my wife's grandmother, Susan. And so, yeah, I would like to call them in. We just finished watching the episode of Pashinko on rice. And I remember that was such an incredible, incredible episode and just a reminder of, even though it's a Korean family living in Japan, it reminded me of my Lola and the things that she has seen and the things that she did so that I could do what I'm doing today. You know, if all those things didn't align, I most definitely wouldn't be here. So to call them into our space today. I love that. Oh, Lola's always have a special place in my heart. Like all my, (laughs) all my writing projects so far has been centered around my Lola's. So it's perfect. They're gangsters. Like, they have seen things that we could not imagine. And they won't even talk about. (laughs) 
they've experienced war. Like my grandma's both experienced World War II and what that was like. Yeah, it's so real. It's so so real. Was your Lola also supportive of your dream of becoming an actor in musical theater? Yeah, I was so lucky. You know, like there are a couple things working for me, right? Like, a, I'm a man. I identify as a man, and like I'm a straight man. So like things are already kind of aligned for me, especially when I first started in the business. That's kind of like things were already built in. Yes, I was an immigrant. Yes, I was Filipino, which comes with its own things. But like within the Filipino culture, at least within my family, I can't speak for the culture as a whole, but especially within my family, like I got away with a lot, you know, to say the least. And so when I started taking interest in singing, like arts as a hobby, like as you know, is always encouraged. Because it's also something that our parents and their parents never got to experience themselves, at least in the breath that we do today. And so when I started to flourish in the arts, that was really, really supported, especially by my Lola. I mean, she was there all the time. Like we said, they have seen some things. And so to be able to see their grandchildren thrive in something that doesn't have to do expressly with survival, at least at first, is such a point of pride like to be able to express themselves and to live, not just survive. So I was very, very grateful that I have a very supportive family. And even when I changed my career path in high school, I thought I was going to be a music teacher. And then I went into musical theater to more performance. That was met with support, fear, as like anyone feels, myself included, but support. So I was really, really privileged in that. I had the support of my family because I know a lot of people don't. So, I mean, yeah, super, super lucky. Yeah, I feel like I'm a new mother. So as a new mother. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm in the same boat, I think, as your parents were probably back like 20, 30 years ago. I want to support whatever he feels he is drawn to and passionate about. And so every time he picks up a paintbrush or a basketball or mm-hmm. even like his musical, he, his ukulele is his favorite instrument right oh now. Oh my gosh, amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And he's only one. So I'm like, yes, let's do this. Yeah, yeah, I'm signing yeah. him up for music lessons already. But that's so important and so incredible. I remember like the things my mom used to have to do to find money to put me into voice lessons because it wasn't readily available, but she was able to find it somewhere. That's amazing. Did you have Filipino or Filipino American influences? Oh my God. As you looked up to? You know what? Where I was growing up and when I was growing up, we didn't have the Filipino community structure that exists on the West Coast. And so last summer, I spent time in L.A., like seven months in L.A., and that was the first time that I ever felt like, holy crap, everyone is supporting everyone and not just, you know, emotionally, but you have people that are giving grants and housing for uh, Filipino immigrants, you know, there's a support system there and just even the sense of community. And on the East Coast, it does exist, but nowhere on the scale, at least that I'm aware of, that it does on the West Coast. And so there are pockets in New York, New Jersey, but we weren't in those pockets. (laughs) You know, my mom's coworkers, they all lived like within a few block radius in the same town in Rockland County, New York. And so whenever we would go there, it was like joining a Filipino community for the first time every time, just because we felt so alien. You know, 
my sisters and I were the small handful in our town that was Asian. Just forget about Filipino, just Asian. And so my parents did their best in trying to educate us and make us feel part of a community. But whenever, you know, honestly, whenever I went to those parties, everyone was welcoming and loving, but I always felt like alien, you know, because we didn't see each other every day and we didn't have that. It wasn't until I left college, I graduated college, and I started to be involved in the Asian American theater community that I found that sense of community and that sense of support, ultimately my sense of identity. But as far as influences, it was anybody that was Asian. Like on film and TV, if you were Asian, that was close enough for me. And it seems like super, super, like it's a general statement. And if somebody were like, oh, you're all the same, like I would take offense to that. But like for me, as a young person looking for influence on TV or in theater, it was anybody. So that was like B.D. Wong. That was Leia Salonga, of course. That was Jackie Chan. That was Jet Li. I mean, Jet Li was huge. I mean, like if you were an Asian person that people took seriously, that is who I looked up to. And it wasn't until later on in my career. I mean, I loved Lou Diamond Phillips. I was like, yes, 100%. But he was secret Asian. Like he was a daywalker. He could be whatever. And graduating college, that's all that I wanted to be was like, I wanted to be, you know, ethnically ambiguous. Now, that's problematic for a multitude of reasons, personally for myself. But, you know, as I later found out and I later acknowledged, like, no, dude, you look Asian. So, like, just be Filipino. Like, don't concern yourself about that other still. But the things that I was watching growing up were network television. So I would watch a lot of bad action movies. Like that's what I grew up on. Like Total Recall, the original, Predator. Like that genre is what I grew up on for better and worse. And so if you were an action star, like if you were Asian at all, I looked up to that person. I remember there was a movie and like our house, we didn't have TFC. I I remember somebody talking about how they always felt connected to their culture because they would just put on TFC. And I remember thinking, oh man, thinking back now, because somebody said this like last year or something. I was like, TFC was a luxury in our house. We didn't get TFC until like my parents bought a house. (laughs) That was just a luxury that we could not afford. The closest thing that we got was Filipino radio, but we got that for my Lola whenever she would come visit. So it's just a radio station. It wasn't even on TV. My relationship with the Philippines is really through food, like most everyone in the Filipino grocery store. So I think that's where I got the beginnings of my cultural identity. But going back to your question, we took a long walk around the valley and now we've returned. Obviously, Le Salonga, Jose Lana in musical theater, B.D. Wong as a whole, and uh, Lou Diamond Phillips, Jackie Chan, Jet Li. Yeah. So I also wanted to ask, because you are the first Asian American Pacific Islander to host a major children's TV series, what that process was like, like, were they actually seeking out a Filipino American host? And what was the auditioning like? It's interesting. They saw everyone. And I didn't find this out until later. I didn't find out until later that They had seen over like 3,000 people at that point. And so they were considering everyone. I honestly can't remember who the last four or six people that were in the audition, including myself, because it had been so long. But 
I know that it was everyone from different ethnic backgrounds. So they weren't looking for someone specifically X, Y, or Z. But yeah, the, the audition process was crazy. It was very quick. It was silence for like a month. And then boom, 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 for a month. <laughs> it was really, really exciting. And I remember being really nervous more and more every time just because I wanted it more and more after every callback. And so it goes. But at that point, I'd been at Aladdin and I'd been there for almost five years. I loved being there. I loved my job. I loved the people that I was working with. I was very, very lucky. But I felt something like I was ready to move on. But to what? I knew that I wanted to do something that would help people. But what? And so when the show came along and I started to audition and every time I got closer and closer and I got to know the character and I got to know more about children's television, like the Mr. Rogers documentary came out around the same time that my final, final audition was. I saw that, did my show as Aladdin because I was understudying Telly Leong at the time. That's another one. Telly, freaking A, man. Telly, he's a huge influence and one of the best people that I've ever worked with in my life. Uh, just a, like a lead in every sense of the word. So I was on for him and producers were coming to see that show. So I saw the Mr. Rogers documentary. I did that show. And then later on in the week was my final, final callback. And it all kind of came together. And I was like, I remember talking to my wife. I don't want to say it out loud, but I want this job so, so badly. To kind of answer your question as far as like being a API and the audition process, it was a culmination of figuring out who I was as a person and then how that fits into me being a performer, you know, like. I had mentioned that when I graduated college, all I ever wanted to be was ethnically ambiguous, which is fine if you indeed look ethnically ambiguous, <laughs> but you can't be what you're not. And I was denying that part of myself and being more concerned of what I looked like and what people thought I looked like was not helping me, as opposed to owning that part of my identity that I, I guess I had been suppressing of like, no, you're Filipino. It'll come. You know, one of my dream roles is to, or was to be a jet in West Side Story, you know, coming to terms of like, oh, that's probably never going to happen. But it doesn't mean that you can't still want it. And maybe there will be a time where you'll be able to do it. And there was a time where I was able to audition for a jet and it was the best audition of my life. It wasn't quite right in some of the parts. They were doing a new production involving like hip hop and different aspects of it. But I was able to do the original Jerome Robbins choreography and I was so proud of it. And I remember the choreographer came up to me after and said, I just want to say, I love how you dance. And like, that was like, I didn't even need to get the job and I didn't get the job and I couldn't have been happier. But that, again, was at that point where I wasn't trying to be ethnically ambiguous. I was just trying to be my best self possible. And thankfully, that audition happened. And because I knew who I was and what I needed to do in order to make that happen, I prepared correctly. I hired my best friend who was a dance captain for West Side Story. We worked on the choreography and I was ready to go because I was focused on everything but don't look Asian. And so when the audition for Blue's Clues came along, 
I had been in that mindset for a while and owning my identity and being able to go into the room and just focus on the material and having as good a time as possible is what helped me. But identity is a huge part of why I was able to just audition successfully, not even just be successful in getting the job, but just to audition successfully and be myself. Wow, that's such a powerful story. I feel like we had similar talks with Ruby Amara when we did her podcast. Oh, yeah. When she also had this pressure to sort of be ethnically ambiguous in the beginning of her career and rap about things Mm. that were just more general versus like Filipino-focused themes and struggles. Yeah. Um, And then she said once you actually embraced her identity and her Filipino-ness, it was like everything just magically manifested in her career. So yeah. it seems very yeah. similar in what you experienced. Yeah, it's really interesting being specific and owning your identity. Joe Coy said something similar during one of his stand-up specials that I was lucky enough to go to. They wanted him to be very general and be very specific. And he talked about how other comedians aren't general. And they bust on each other all the time. And they bust on their people all the time. But that doesn't stop us from enjoying it. We don't feel excluded. And we're also not mean about it. It's just something to relate. And if anything, the specificity and the audience being able to relate to it, even though they're not Filipino, just speaks to how universal the things that we're talking about are. It's not just localized to this is a Filipino problem or this is what Filipinos do. It's like, oh my gosh, I feel so connected to you because we do that also. And so, you know, specificity is important. Absolutely. And I also feel like the show Blue's Clues beautifully embraces that about you and our culture. And they've had so many instances where they refer to Lola, you know, introducing the Lola character and making hollow hollow. And I think that's what's so powerful about the show. I just wonder how involved are you with that writing process and, you know, including and incorporating our culture into it. You know what's so interesting? The writers, they're the best children's TV writers in the business. Our show is really specific. Like, we're not just here to entertain. In fact, our show is like Steve Burns, Donovan, and I like joke around that, you know, comedy dies on our show just because we have a curriculum. At every stage in our writing process and production process, we flip everything back to a research team and to children. If they're not getting the point of the exercise, then we have to strengthen that. And we only have so much time to do it. So while this may be a really hilarious joke, like we have to cut it and just be more straight to the point. Uh, We still have a lot of fun, but we have the best writers because they're able to, especially after the first season, after the first season, they started writing like me. I didn't know what I was going to be like in season one. They didn't know how I was going to be like either. And so they're like, you know, these are the lines, play around with them. And then we'll tell you if it has to be said specifically this way for curriculum reasons. But by season two, they started writing for me. And I was like, oh, wow, they're really on it. And I remember the producer, Siobhan Gray, one of the best producers I've ever worked with and for, she said, hey, Josh. I want to tell you a surprise. I'm like, what? Like, you're getting a Lola this year. And she said, Lola. And I was like, what? And they brought in a Filipino cultural consultant on everything. 
The director of that episode is uh, Matthias Horiger, who is uh, Filipino up here in Canada. Like they made sure that it was right. And as the episodes go on, I don't know what has aired and what hasn't aired. They brought in more consultants and choreographers and they bumped it back. And then they also ask me when I'm on set. Like as far as my input in the writing process, I am not informed enough of curriculum and of even cultural things to really add anything. It's not until I get onto set when it's my job to personalize these things that they've written that I come into the picture and say, oh, well, actually, you know, like my Lola used to do this or, or whatever. That's all kind of put together. Like the Manong part where I give Manong to uh, Lola, like we did that in the audition, you know? So there's a lot that comes in. It's a team effort and everybody is just trying to do their best. But what I love about our show and about our writing team and our creative team is that we're not trying to capitalize and profitize the cultural aspect of my culture, our culture. It's more of highlighting. They didn't cast me because they needed a Filipino. They cast me because they needed a good person on camera. And like, what else is there? You know, and so I really appreciate that because, you know, going back to dream jobs, like my only real dream was to play somebody that was, you know, that was just American, not foreigner, not immigrant. There's so many immigrant stories. Minari was an amazing, amazing story just because I was like, you want small town American story? Here it is, you know, and it's such an honor to be in a show that's like that. And I want to just say, too, as a mother of a young Filipino boy, I 100% appreciate everything that the producers do, that you do on the show, that the writers do, because whether they all recognize that, I feel like it's opening so many more doors for young Filipino kids and seeing themselves on TV. I never got to see that. Like we said earlier, our influences were anyone Asian. <laughs> A hundred percent. Like people were talking about all the Filipino people that they watched growing up. When I was on the West Coast, I felt so un-Filipino. <laughs> or uh, not like, Filipino oh, enough. Yeah, <laughs> Not Filipino yeah. enough. Exactly. Yeah. I just feel so lucky that kids are growing up with possibility. Mm. You know? Yes. Our parents came to the States or to Canada or wherever. They left their home where all their friends and family are to give us opportunity and possibility it doesn't mean that like when my parents got my sisters and i a violin and made us do violin in school that we'd become concert violinists but it was the possibility and the opportunity do you want to continue it was choice it wasn't no you can't do that you have to go to work and you know i'm so thankful for that and i think that's the beauty of our generation and now into our the younger generation is that ability and capacity to have yeah you know dreams manifest versus yeah like you said earlier just focusing on the surviving aspect of living um, and now we get to switch gears and reframe and change our perspectives and really focus on the thriving aspects of life mm-hmm. and having that luxury so i just want to thank you oh thank you <laughs> thank you we, we you know it's a system that involves everyone that everyone needs to support each other if it weren't for you and people in the media these stories would end at the credit like there wouldn't be a life and there wouldn't be a conversation and that's all that's ever important 
is to continue the conversation. So thank you. Yeah. And I think I also wanted to ask, you know, in previous interviews, you also shared of themes of Blue's Big City Adventure on Paramount Plus, which me and my son just watched this morning. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) And you talk about, you know, how that movie and the themes of that movie is really about community Mm -hmm. rather than just accumulating accomplishments. And I just wanted to know more in detail about your community and how that helped you manifest your dreams now. Yeah, I mean, community looks different at different points of your life. Sometimes it is a church group. Sometimes it is Boy Scouts. And sometimes it is just your group of friends that are with you. And your community can grow and your community can shrink. But uh, a community is something that you have to take care of. And of all the references that I'm going to make, the movie John Wick, there's a quote like, friendship means little when it's convenient. And it's such as like, oh, wow. First of all, what a badass thing to say right before an action sequence. (laughs) But... Like, it's so true. A community is something that you have to take care of. And so when I was growing up, it was my parents, my aunt, my sisters, all finding ways to make sure that I could keep doing what I'm doing. And when I was in school, finding ways to keep doing what I was doing. And even for myself, understanding that, hey, you know, you need to chip in and help and find a way and getting a job so that like I didn't put too much stress on the community and if I'm able I should be doing this on my own as much as possible because that time will end where the community can no longer provide the support that you need it'll transition into more of an emotional support and it is my responsibility and so community is so so important you know I remember my sister's Whenever they would come and see me perform, they would give me notes after. They're like, good job, Josh, or good job, Kuya. Now your shoulders are too high. You need to relax your shoulders. And they're like, oh, I was impressed. Now do this. And it was never mean. And I was so thankful for that because I know that some kids have like, they're not mean, but they have like a more of a teasy relationship with their siblings, which for me would not, I'm, I'm a terribly sensitive person. So like, I would become defensive even more than I already am. And so I was very fortunate enough to have that as far as community in school. When I told my parents that I wanted to pursue musical theater and change my college process, they went to my teachers, my voice teacher, my music teacher. And they said, you know, Josh is a smart kid. And if there were ever a time to give it a try, it's now to take the risk. Because if it doesn't work out, he's a smart kid and he'll know when to move on. And I think that's a lot of the fear is as far as parents and kids going into performing is like, well, what if it doesn't work out? And the thing is, is that it's the same situation if your kid wants to become an astronaut or if your kid wants to become a firefighter. You know, something could happen where, you know, within the training process, they get injured and all of a sudden they can't complete a firefighter training. And so no matter what, whether it's the arts or even just, I don't know, finance, (laughs) everything is tricky today. We're all in the same boat. I mean, with the actor strike, 
There's a great article that we were reading that said, who would have thought the, the last stand for humans against AI taking jobs would be actors and writers for entertainment? It, we're all in the same boat. And so as far as community, it's not just support, but also trust that I will make the right decision. And in the movie, that's the only reason that I get to where I'm going is that people are helping me along the way, doing things out of just out of the kindness of their heart. And then at the end of the movie, it's up to me to realize, well, am I going to be upset and take a turn and be really spiteful that I missed this audition? Or am I going to be grateful that this journey was wonderful and that let's see what happens next? And fortunately in the movie, it works out where I don't have to find out what's next. I get the job, which is fantastic. But, you know, as actors, we audition more than we get jobs. So, you know, we're kind of used to that failure. And I don't, well, actually, I don't know if we'll ever be used to it, but we keep going regardless. I think we're resilient in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Resilient. Absolutely. And I love those themes that you speak on too, about how we really get to focus on the journey and the adventure versus this expectation that we put out there and meeting that expectation. I mean, it's always great when we manifest our dreams, but really I continue to tell, you know, my family and I used to coach, you know, that it's about the journey and loving that process. And when you're in that energy of love and joy and gratefulness, that's actually what's going to sort of help you manifest even more of what you're feeling now. Yeah. You know, and side note, like just because like we're just auditioning recently, my wife helps me with my auditions a lot. She used to be an actor. She's in Jersey Boys off Broadway and she's now transitioning. She's finishing her up her MBA. She's amazing. So I'm fortunate enough to have somebody help me that knows what they're talking about, knows what they're doing. As far as the journey being more important than the result, whenever we're working on an audition and I'm feeling insecure about the material or whatever, and then I become defensive, it doesn't matter how good the take looks when I submit it. I hate it. I hate it because the journey to that, myself, I was not being as open because I was too defensive and too guarded. So it doesn't matter whether I get it or not. Like that process sucked and she was wonderful. And so even when I don't get jobs and like we had fun taping the audition, I don't care because that part was wonderful. Obviously, I want the job. (laughs) Yes. And we want to pay rent. (laughs) Exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. I often had to like psych myself up. I was also acting in New York. And every time I went to an audition, I just had to be like, I'm getting a chance to act. (laughs) And this is what I signed up for. It's just like you're saying, like, you may get the job, you may not. But at least today I'm getting to act in front of audience and I'm going to do the best that I possibly can. 110 percent. My favorite performance that I've ever done was for that West Side Story audition when I felt like I was in the pocket and I didn't even get the job. But it's a highlight of my career um, to have done that well and to be so proud of that work. So I kind of want to switch gears, though. What would your dream acting project be? And I also know you're an emerging filmmaker or what project would you like to direct in the future? Oh, my gosh. What a great question. All right. So in the near future, I leave for Bangkok tomorrow. I've never been to Thailand before. 
I'm going to be doing a musical out there called Waterfall, and it's a Maltby and Shire musical. I'd been working on this show in some capacity for over 10 years. I remember doing the table reads as the ensemble, maybe like a, a couple of characters here and there back in 2012 or 2013. I think it was 2012. And then now, over 10 years later, doing it as the lead, it's incredible. And the creative team is wonderful. I get to work with John Jambrionis, which is super, super cool. I've always wanted to work with him. I've been a fan of his and Daniel Hope. And so I'm really, really excited for this next step in the process. I hope that we get a theater. It would be awesome to like be on the West End for a bit before coming back to New York, you know? Just do a little pit stop, get a little per diem. Uh, so that would be wonderful. As far as like projects that I want to do, there are a few. There are three musicals, really, and a few different movies that have to do with identity and just kind of like identity, not so head on as far as like what it's like to be Filipino, but trying to figure out what your place is in the world, especially when you're not in the Philippines. Trying to figure out who you are as a Filipino in America and trying to balance your cultural identity, but also your identity in this new place that your family worked so hard to bring you to in ideology and opportunity. How to bring that together is super important. But I think the thing that always I always think about is like, I think it's about time we had like a Filipino action movie. Like a John Wick or an Ongba, because we have Eskrima, we have Kali, we have so many cool fighting styles. I think it's time that we get something that is really stylized and really cool. You're my vote for action star. Thank you. Have you been brushing thank you, thank up you, you. on your martial arts and your backflips? <laughs> oh my gosh. Mas, I'll get my backflips down. Whenever I'm not working, uh, leading up to the job, I have to stop, but I, I practice jiu-jitsu so that's a, a lot of fun like i love watching boxing and mma purely for like the technical aspect it truthfully kind of makes me queasy just because i don't like getting injured and i don't ever want to get punched in the face that sounds like a terrible thing i know they're like you don't really feel it until after i'm like i don't want to feel it ever but yeah that, that'd be awesome to do a, do an action movie and then as far as directing i would like to go into musicals direct for theater, I think it would be really, really wonderful. And that's a space that lacks diversity, period, in the creative space. And so I'm looking forward to being able to contribute to that. And hopefully, once I'm free from Blue's Clues and can work on other things, then I can start to develop projects that I've been kind of thinking about and put them on paper without you know someone else being able to take ownership over it. <laughs> there you go. That's the first step, putting it on paper. That's right. Absolutely. So then my next question is any advice you want to give to emerging actors or folks who want to Ooh. get into musical theater? Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much to say. A, you have to go and live your life. You know, you have to devote the time to the craft and figure out what your time is worth. Meaning like, is my time worth continuing to go to this crappy acting class or dance class because that costs money and in order to spend that money you have to work and so like you know starting to equate like oh I can work just enough at this job and that's kind of where things really started to open up for me because I really got into this 
mode where I was working, 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 I was starting to burn out. And I had to figure out how much do I need to work to maintain a decent quality of life and continue to go to class to as many classes as I can, as many good classes as I can. So figuring that out, because you have to figure that out, you also have to learn about your finances and how to make sure that you're saving enough and spending your money effectively. But what I would say is that when you get the job, you're going to want to spend a lot of money. And Lord, I have spent a lot of money. Like every time that I've gotten a new job, I'm like, oh, I got this job. I'm going to treat myself. You can't keep treating yourself. You can't do it. It's not possible. But the older we get, the more mature we get. I would say one of the things that you can start considering, whether you're going to pursue acting or not, is to look into what saving for the rest of your life looks like, whether that be putting money away into a retirement account, uh, an IRA, um, a 401k, if you're fortunate enough to have it, if you if you are part of a union uh, like Actors Equity Association or SAG-AFTRA, you have access to a 401k where you can contribute money into that for your future because living isn't getting cheaper. Finding out the most effective way to save and earn interest on that money so that you can continue to live a full life. A full life is important because so many of the people that came before you worked their butts off not living a full life so that you could do that, so that you could study acting. It's a gift enough to be able to consider acting for a living. So earn that gift and make sure that you take care of yourself, take care of your finances, and take care of your community. I love how practical all of that advice. <laughs> my mom would be like, I love jobs. Oh my gosh. And join the union. Yeah, and join, join the union. union. <laughs> join the union. Absolutely. I think one of my biggest acting gigs in New York that I got, <laughs> I definitely did the treat yourself and I splurged. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, I should, probably should have saved that and started a Roth yep. IRA or something. <laughs> I wish I had that conversation earlier in my life because like, it wasn't until I got Aladdin that everyone around me was a little bit older and they were talking about their savings accounts. And I was like, what? And I remember when I like signed my contract and signed all my like my payment information, they talked about how much you wanted to contribute to your uh, 401k. And I was like, I want that money. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to contribute anything. And then they started talking about it. And then I remember being like, oh, I'll go up to the company manager. Like, hey, can I get that form back? I just need to adjust some numbers. <laughs> well, now, you know, you're at an age where congratulations, yeah. by the way, buying a home and, you know, all these, oh, all these adult things. So, you know, we're at a better place in our life that we can start saving. And I love that you give the advice to the younger generation and those who are emerging. Because as an actor, you just never know when the next gig is going to come. You never know. And, you know, the thing about saving, it's like, yeah, sure, we're not going to live forever and you could die tomorrow. Sure, fine. But by saving money, you have you're giving yourself the opportunity to focus on doing work. The work that you need to do, not the work that you have to do. Like you can work less hours. Once you get off of your acting gig, you can work less shifts maybe at your survival job so that you can focus on your auditions more. So instead of having to learn your lines between shifts or right before bed, you can spend an entire day 
just working on the material. You could even afford to get a coach to help coach you on that material like all the heavy hitters do in Hollywood. Those are things that you want to start considering because you're not just saving for the rest of your life. You're saving money so that you can provide yourself opportunity to do better and to be better. There's nothing better than balling when you're retired. You don't want to be like a baller when you're young. And then when you get older, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm just ready to go. No, it's like, <laughs> you want to ball when you have like all the time in the world. That's when you want to ball. We exactly. went on vacation and there were like so many retirees that were like, yeah, we're just on vacation for most of our lives. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, you're retired. Like, no, we're on vacation for most of our lives. That's what I want to be. There you go. Uh, such good advice. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for that. I also want to ask, I think this is coming up to our last question because we're running out of time and I know you have things to do and you're leaving for Thailand tomorrow. I wanted to ask, what are you currently geeking over? I'm always a camera geek because I love photography, but because we bought a house and I've been doing so many projects around the house and fixing things. So I'm geeking over Leatherman. I love knives and pocket knives, but the fact that you can open this with one hand when I'm holding up a light and I have to strip a wire and I can just be like, like a body song and just kind of like fix that. Like, I'm not like a carpenter. I'm not any of these things, but like these things exist because they make sense. And all the things that you actually need are on here, like screwdriver, scissors. I remember growing up and it never made sense to me, but I was in Boy Scouts and growing up all the dads had Leatherman contractors. I was like, yeah, well, that makes sense. I, I don't need any of these tools. Um, and then I become a homeowner. I'm like, I just wish I had a, a thing like that. I could just fix this right now that I don't have to go to the garage and get a really big thing that that's overkill. And so I've been geeking out about how convenient and how well built the Leatherman T4 is. And so if anybody out there is a fan of Leatherman, it's wonderful. Oh, my husband, my <laughs> husband's just fell in love with you. <laughs> He's the same oh way. Oh, my God. It's like Home Depot. Yeah. My dad is obsessed with Home Depot. And as a kid, I was like, this is the worst thing in the world. <laughs> but now my wife asks me, it's like, hey, what are you doing? I just got to go to Home Depot. I got to go to Home Depot. I like, I have to get like one thing. And I'm just like trolling the aisles, like thinking of possibilities that will never happen. Like, I got to build a deck. <laughs> That's exactly like my father-in-law and my husband. <laughs> <laughs> All they want for Christmas is like Home Depot gift cards and they're happy. It's amazing. I remember I went to Home Depot with our friend who was doing work for us that like I was I'm out of my debt. And we went in there. We're in and out in like 10 minutes. We're like, holy crap. So that's what it's like to go to Home Depot and know exactly what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, well, I've never been here this fast. This is incredible. <laughs> I feel like that's like my equivalent is Target. Oh, yeah. It's a vacation. <laughs> it's a it's a vacation. It's absolutely a vacation. A hundred percent. I'm not even a parent and <laughs> I, I, I could spend hours in Target. OK, I, I'm going to let you go because I know you have tons of stuff to do and we so appreciate your time and your energy is so amazing, Josh. Thank you so much for oh, being on man. our podcast and opening up with us and our listeners about your experience as an entertainer, as a children's TV host, and an actor, 
And we just want to wish you the best of luck in Thailand. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. And also just your whole career. We're all rooting for you. And if you ever want to come to the West Coast, San Francisco Bay Area has open arms for you. And we're a huge, Thank you. huge community out here. And we'd love to host you and to show you around on all the great things that we're doing here in the Bay. Thank you so much. And I, I look forward to connecting again soon. And then this has been wonderful. Thank you. Josh's genuine passion for the craft is evident in how he approaches auditions with respect and values the journey over conforming to expectation. And I think this perspective serves as a valuable lesson for artists across all mediums. Personally, I've experienced that staying present in the process allows me to tap into a more positive mindset, which helps me overcome self-doubt and actually unlocks this potential to achieve my greatest dreams. It's like that saying, don't block your blessings. And when you focus on the process and focus on the present, you're not bogged down by the pressures of the expectation to be something or achieve something. And Josh's profound gratitude towards his kapwa, the Filipino Broadway community, acting teachers, dance choreographers, and of course, his supportive family, served as a remarkable source of inspiration. Recognizing that achieving such significant dreams requires the collective support of a community actually echoes my first episode with Dr. Alison Didiako-Kubalan. And not only is Josh beautifully representing his community, but he also realizes he couldn't be where he is without it. You can find Josh on Instagram at It's Josh De La Cruz. And this is his website at www.itsjoshdelacruz.com. Cultural Cultivators is hosted by me, Nicole Salver. You can follow me on Instagram at Kindred Kapwa. This podcast is co-produced by John Reyes and Belai Creative and is a product of Cultivate Labs. Stay in touch at belaycreative.org.